you're ready. What a blessing to be together today, to lift our hearts to the Creator, and to come to His Word and seek to know Him better through it. That's our desire. It's always our desire as we approach the Scriptures each and every week. And today we're going to be looking specifically at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. So go ahead and turn there. We saw the last two weeks how the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples and how uh, they were speaking out the mighty works of God in the languages of the nations represented by those who had come from all over to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. We saw how it says that the people came from everywhere, every language being represented and the people, the disciples, as they were worshiping and praying together, were filled with the Spirit, and they literally began to speak all of the languages of all of the people who had assembled in Jerusalem. And they hear them, and they gather, and they're bewildered and perplexed and amazed because these people are somehow speaking in a language that is their heart language that they can understand. And Peter, we saw last week, steps forward, standing with the other 11 apostles and begins to tell them what is happening. And he attributes it, connects it to what Joel had written when he prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And he continues that explanation in the text today. So let's look at it together. Go ahead and stand if you're able and follow along as I read Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made, me know, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. 
What a gift it is to us. And we don't want to take it for granted today, Lord. We, we don't want to um, ignore it. We don't want to let this time just pass by. We want to give our hearts to you. And we ask that you speak through these words, this scripture, to our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, this is a, a bit of a transition in Peter's speech here. And up to this point, although it's been brief, he's been showing that the amazing things that these people were seeing, things that bewildered them, were the fulfillment of what Joel had written, that the last days have arrived. And now he seems to change subject, but that's not what's happening. The reason the last days are here is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what he's explaining in the text today. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I'm going to pause and say here, this is such an incredible text. This is Peter proclaiming to all of those who gathered the truth about Jesus. They hear all of them speaking in the language of their home. And they're amazed. And Peter stands before all of these people and tells them the truth about Jesus. He's presenting the case for Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise of the Christ, the Messiah. He's saying first, the last days are now. They've arrived. And second, the long-awaited one, the Christ, is Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, just in this one verse, that's been proven to you. And he points back to the amazing wonders God did through Jesus and then to his death and resurrection. Now, we, we ought to learn from that. This is the gospel. Gospel preaching tells people the story of Jesus. It's a story about his life, his teachings, his miracles, his wonders, his calling people to follow him, his embodied acts, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And as we consider what Peter is pointing to here, it's very important to rehearse those truths, all of the truths of the gospel story. I mentioned his embodied acts as a part of gospel proclamation. And I mean by that, how he lived. What he was like as a neighbor, as a brother, as a son, as a, a human being, as an enemy. The fact that Jesus sat at the table with the excluded of the world. And Peter mentions here in his description of Jesus that he was Jesus of Nazareth. 
In other words, he was an actual historical person. A man who lived in history. But not just any ordinary man. He was a man, Peter says, attested to you by God. In other words, God proved him to be the Christ who was promised. God proved it to you. Now, these these Jewish people living in Jerusalem and Judea and those who have gathered together for the feast, all of them together, they would have known about Jesus and His ministry, whether they believed in Him or not, whether they trusted in Him or not, they would have known about Him. Remember, this is just weeks since His resurrection. They would have heard of His miracles. Some of them would have seen his miracles, and heard him teach. They would have known the stories or even seen how he loved people. The outcasts and the sinners, how he was different than anything they had ever experienced. Peter's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth that you've heard of and seen God proved to you that He is the Christ by His mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, Peter says, you know this. He continues, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Continuing, this verse is very important. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if we're reading carefully there, we might pause and say, well, which is it, Peter? He says that Jesus died by the plan of God, and Jesus died by the plan and work of lawless men. Now, let me, let me say here, this verse, as well as others, but this verse has been used for wicked acts. There's a long history of anti-Semitic attitudes and mistreatment of Jewish people, and some of that mistreatment being horrifying, and it's been done by professing Christians. And any time that has happened, any time a verse like this has been used to approve of or support anti-Semitism, it's because the Scripture has been abused to defend racist attitudes that are seated within those individuals or groups. You consider from Scripture itself, we're told that Jesus himself was Jewish. That the twelve apostles were Jewish. God expresses his love for Jewish people. Not only that, there's not a single example of hostility from disciples toward Jewish people. 
Rather, we know that the gospel is for all flesh. We learn that in this text in Acts chapter 2. God is saving from every nation and every tongue. That's his plan, and it will be fulfilled. You just let this story play out and see what happens. We'll find that out next week as Kurt is preaching the next text for us. God's love and acceptance of them as they repent. And not just that, we today, now, are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. To love our neighbor as ourself. And we're called by Jesus to love our enemies. And Jesus is our example here. Proven through his works, his miracles, the way he loved and accepted all, even the marginalized. And ultimately, as we consider this text and what Peter is saying here, Jesus looked out on them, the Jewish people, as he was suffering immense pain on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We must hear the words of Peter here. Listen and learn and love others in response. So many Americans, and sadly even American Christians, are being lied to, led astray into conspiracy theories, Holocaust denial or QAnon, and on and on and on. And the reality is so many of those conspiracy theories are rooted in anti-Semitic propaganda and beliefs. But you look at what Peter is saying here and think. Yes, he says, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. He says that. But he also precedes that by saying Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's this great mystery here. This mystery that even if we dismiss the commands to love our neighbor, the mystery in this text makes it impossible to blame the Jewish people and have hatred toward them for the death of Jesus. God planned it, and He accomplished it. On the one hand, Jesus' death, which, which was horrible, was the act of wicked, lawless people. The leaders of the Jewish people had handed Jesus over to the Romans knowing full well of their brutality and the torture that, that Jesus would receive. So much evil. But, but just as the early church knew, God, the Creator, had determined it must take place. That he planned it for the salvation for everyone, 
Jewish and Gentile. God intended for Jesus to die and the actions that sent Jesus there were by wicked men. C.K. Barrett writes, what appeared to be a free, concerted action by Jews and Gentiles was in fact done because God foreknew, decided it, and planned it. Now again, this is a mystery, a paradox of Jesus' death that, that it was engineered and carried out by human beings while at the same time the climax of God's plan of salvation. Jesus' death on the cross, as gruesome as it was, was a part of His mission. And, and let me say here, we don't want to lose the feeling of either of those things. We don't want to lose that it, that it was gruesome, that it was wicked, that it was evil, and we don't want to lose that God foreknew and planned it for your sake and for mine. It goes on in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. His death is not the end of the story. And your gospel presentation should not only include his death. He didn't stay dead. God the Father vindicated Jesus' son by raising him from the dead. God broke the bonds of death and raised him to life. Peter says that had to happen. It wasn't even possible for Jesus to stay dead. And then he, he points to the psalm by David as evidence of that. Verses 25 through 28. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, this is quoted from Psalm 16, which Peter attributes to David. And these listeners, those, those that Peter are literally, is literally preaching to here, they, they knew their Hebrew Bibles very well. And so Peter proves his point by appealing to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Now, Psalm 16 was connected to David, who was a messianic figure. And in the psalm, it expresses David's joy and trust in God that he will be preserved even in the face of death. But we learn here that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of promises that God made through David. And his resurrection proves that Jesus is the true son and the heir of David's throne. That Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Peter here uses Psalm 16 to explain why death didn't have the power to keep Jesus in the realm of the dead, why it was impossible, 
for him to stay dead. He's saying here that the words of David in Psalm 16 are actually about Jesus. They're true of Jesus, not of David. The basis for David's joyful confidence is his certainty that the Lord will not abandon him to the realm of the dead where decay reigns. That is true of the Christ. In other words, the words of the psalmist fit what we know to be true about Jesus and his resurrection. Verses 29 through 31, brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." Peter's emphasizing his point here. We know that this can't be true about David. We know that David cannot have been referring to himself in that psalm. Now, did David think he was referring to himself? Probably. It's one of the things we learned in our How We Got the Bible series. But But we know, Peter is able to to articulate now, that's not true of David. He's writing prophetically, whether he knew it or not at the time, because he died, and he was buried, and his flesh did decay, and his flesh was corrupted in the normal way. So the only way that we can make sense of that text in Psalm 16 is if it meant someone else, if it's prophetic, that it was true of the son of David who was coming to reign. The psalmist writes in Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Peter's referring to that in verse 30. And then it says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, that Jesus' flesh was not corrupted. And verse 32 continues, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says, we saw it. We saw him. We saw him die. We saw that he was buried. And we saw him alive. They actually saw Jesus alive after his death and burial. And his body had not decayed, had not been corrupted. What a glorious truth for Peter to proclaim to these people. He's saying here the great news of the story of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he died a terrible death on the cross. He was crucified. His body was literally taken down and buried in a tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead. His resurrection was just as sure, just as certain, just as real as his death. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has now been exalted at God's right hand. Jesus was exalted by God and sits at the right hand of God. Now, one interesting thing about Peter quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, is that he leaves off the last line of verse 11. Psalm 16, 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That's where Peter ends. But the verse doesn't end there. Psalm 16, 11 finishes this way. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I think that Peter is referring to that part of Psalm 16 when he says this here. That last line of Psalm 16 is Jesus. The pleasures forevermore that are at the right hand of God. Peter says here in Acts 2.33, that's Jesus. This is why we have to get our priorities right. We tend to get fixated in this life on going to heaven. Which is not the goal. The goal is Jesus. Jesus is our aim and our goal. The hope is the coming of Jesus and his kingdom on earth. Where he reigns over us with the love and joy and pleasures forevermore that he displayed to all that he walked among 2,000 years ago. And more. Because there'll be no sin, no sorrow, no death. That's our desire. That's what Peter's highlighting here. It's all about the Christ. And God, he says, has proven him to you. He is at the right hand of the Father where there is pleasure forevermore. Verses 34 and 35 continue. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, he, he compares this words of David. He compares Jesus to that truth. Refers to Psalm 110, verse 1. David died and was buried and never ascended into heaven. So the words of Psalm 110, 1 cannot apply to David. David is not the one to come and to reign. David is not the one who ascends to the right hand of the Father where there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who came and lived a perfect life and died a horrifying death and was buried and raised to life 
and ascended to the Father's right hand before the eyes of the disciples. And then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof, the sure and certain sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, the one that Israel had been waiting for. And God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Peter says, both Lord and Messiah. That is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And that's what we celebrate each and every Sunday throughout the year. And hopefully that we celebrate as we walk through this life. Jesus is the one and only one in whom true life is found. Now again, Peter mentions here that they crucified Jesus whom you crucified. And he says it to show that his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion was a necessary step in the path to his place at God's right hand. And what is the result of all of this? For all who call upon the name of the Lord as the true Christ, salvation and pleasures forevermore. That's the Jesus promised to us and that's the Jesus proven to us. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper and if I'm honest, I, I think this entire text and this entire sermon is a lead-in, a preparation for taking the Lord's Supper. Christ came to this earth and God proved him to us by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And people lived alongside of Jesus. They saw him. They were loved by him. They were healed by him. They were accepted by him. Imagine that. Imagine those lepers. Imagine the prostitutes. Imagine the woman with the issue of blood who had been rejected by everyone else for 12 years. The outcasts and the marginalized. Loved and welcomed by Jesus. And this man from Nazareth, sent by God, full of love, was arrested and crucified. He suffered an unthinkable death, and even in the midst of that suffering, said to his father, if you look on the ones who mocked him, Father, forgive them. And then he died. But in death, his body was not corrupted. The awful pains of death had no hold on him. They could not hold him. He was not abandoned in death. Rather, God raised him from the dead. He came out of the grave and continued to love and welcome others to himself. And just as Peter is proclaiming those truths, so should we. And one of the ways we do that is 
taking the bread and the cup together. As often, Peter says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, when heaven meets earth for all of eternity, then there will be pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good and every single thing you do is good. You're trustworthy and kind. You're so gracious to us, Lord. And Lord, we don't want to just consider. We don't want to just reflect upon your love. The love you had for everyone. The love you had for the outcast the marginalized, the broken, sinner. We don't want to just reflect upon that. We want to literally reflect that, Lord. We want to believe it so intensely. We want to gaze upon the truths about Jesus so much and be transformed by the Holy Spirit so completely that we reflect that love, Lord. That other people would be able to experience and see truly how good you are, how kind you are, how merciful you are. Lord, there may be some here today who feel completely unacceptable. Father, I praise you for Jesus, who, who's the one that showed us, demonstrated to us how you, Lord, accept the unwanted, the unlovely, the outcast, the marginalized. That there's no circumstance that we're coming from where you don't say, come. So, Father, help us. We come to get the bread and the cup and we, and even as we wait, Lord, to partake it to, of it together, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to reflect on Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, and to know Jesus, and that you transform us by your love, we pray in Christ's name, amen.